Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, this morning, we're picking back up in Romans. We took a break last week to study Matthew's resurrection account. Uh, but this morning, we're getting back to our series in Romans, and we're going to be finishing up Romans chapter 2 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles with you, your devices, I encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be fish, finishing up the chapter beginning in uh, verse 12 and going on through the end. But to recap real quick from two weeks ago, Paul was writing in chapter 2, starting in verse 9, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Doesn't matter. Jew, Greek, male, female, slave or free. God is not concerned with those things that so often concern us. The Jews thought, you know, that being Jewish was enough. They were God's chosen people. They were special. Uh, but what Jesus revealed to us and what Paul is reiterating here is that God is, is concerned with our hearts. He's concerned with our hearts and our motives and how we each individually live. He's not concerned with our genealogy. For we will each be judged individually. For as Paul says, God shows no partiality. And when the Jew is first, he is first in glory and honor, yes, but also first in tribulation and distress, as Paul says. And we see this played out in Scripture time and time again throughout the Old Testament. So Paul will continue this thought and develop it further, beginning in verse 12. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. God shows no partiality. So people will perish and be judged not because they have or do not have the law, but because they have sinned. And the law Paul speaks of here and throughout this passage is the 613 laws of Moses. Um, and, and that's a lot, a lot of laws. But understand this, the law, meaning all, all of 613 laws, have been summed up multiple times by multiple prophets. You know, the Ten Commandments kind of being the first example and the basis for this thought that the law communicated by God um, has fundamental values. It was an ongoing dis discussion by Jewish teachers on, you know, what were the most uh, comprehensive uh, commandments? H how could you say them all in the shortest amount of time? Um, how could you kind of capture the picture of God's law? Um, another example of, of capturing the picture of God's law, we find from the prophet Malik, uh, no, Micah, uh, and he writes in Micah chapter 6, he says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, referring uh, to the uh, priestly ritualistic law? Uh, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly 
with your God. So we see here clearly God's heart and desire is revealed in his law, and it is for our hearts to be right before him, and then also to be right with others whom he's put in our lives. We see in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the prophet Hosea um, is writing as God speaks through him. We read, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, the sacrificial system was because of sin, and the wages of sin was death, and so its fulfillment was on the cross. It was foreshadowing to the cross. But the true beating heart of God's law is that he desires us to love with a steadfast love, to know him and to do justice and to do kindness and to love and to walk humbly before him. We read in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 40, uh, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees who were asking him questions, uh, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything hinges there. Loving God and loving others. That's what the law is about. That's what the moral law is driving us towards. Being right with God because we love God. And being right with others because we love others. Loving them enough to not belittle, to not steal from them, to not objectify them, etc. In short, we love them as ourselves. Now again, verse 12, is, as we've got a little better understanding now of God's law and what Paul is talking about here. Verse 12 again, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Sin will be judged whether or not you have God's written law. Verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul says, only by being doers of the law will we be justified. And James chapter 2 is probably the, the best, the most well-known passage on this subject, where James writes, what, it, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and, and filled, without giving him uh, the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What good is that? That's why when judging, you know, we talked about this two weeks ago, uh, when judging, we look at ourselves first and foremost and take the log out of our own eye, as Jesus teaches, so that we can see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye. So we want to be doers of the law, not merely hearers of it. Verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature 
do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, Paul's writing here, according to my gospel, meaning uh, the gospel that Paul is preaching and, and willing to die for, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one he's always talking about. <laughs> according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus on that day, that day of judgment. So those who've never heard the scriptures in their life, by doing the law without knowing it, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts. And they will be judged by their thoughts and motives, either accusing them or excusing them on that day, the day of judgment, when God judges the secrets of men in Christ Jesus. And so nevertheless, men are without excuse. Those in ignorance then and now of God's law will be judged. For God has revealed himself to all through his creation, Romans 1, and the work of the law is written on our hearts, Romans 2. Bible scholar T.W. Manson writes of these saying, if they are loyal to the good they know, they will be acceptable to God. But it is a very big if. If they're loyal to the good they know, that which can be known and is revealed of God uh, to the world, they will be acceptable to God. And that's as far as we'll go down that rabbit trail for we trust God to, to sort all of that out. <laughs> okay, he's gonna, he's gonna sort all that out. He's the perfect judge. Uh, but we have a very specific calling from Christ Jesus on our lives to share his word, to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with the whole world, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. So our calling is, is to reach those people who've never heard it before, is to reach them. And that's what Paul is doing here, and that's our calling as well. So, so we want to go to those who have not heard, and we know that God will judge them by their hearts, but how much better, how much better if they've heard and received the gospel? Many times over better. For the gospel has the power to change lives. It truly does. Many of you uh, listening are unrecognizable to your old self. You're a totally different person. And somebody from your past um, who knew you then and, and, and never knew you since you've known Jesus, uh, if they saw you today, they would be like, who is this person? <laughs> I don't know you. What changed you? And it's a simple answer. It's Jesus. Jesus changed me. He changed me. He redeemed me. He made me new. So our calling is to reach out to people, to bring them in, to, to invite them, to scatter those seeds, man, to, to share the good news. We want to bring them in to be a part of that great wedding banquet when Christ returns and gathers us, his bride, the church, for that great celebration, the greatest party of all time, will be with Jesus when he comes to claim us as his own. We want, we want to bring in everyone, man. We can't force anybody in, but we want to go out and implore them, come, know Jesus, know the life that he has for you. So let us not be satisfied with, you know, a shabby effort a half-hearted attitude with our calling. Let's take it seriously. For the Great Commission is Christ calling on all of us. So here we go. Lesson one from these first four verses that we're looking at. 
Bible knowledge doesn't save us. <laughs> and lack of knowledge doesn't excuse us. That's lesson one. And there's a Latin phrase here. I'm going to just butcher probably. Uh, but I'm going to try it. Ignorantia legis neminen excusat. So that's Latin for ignorance of law excuses no one. Meaning a person who is unaware of law may not escape liability for violating that law merely by being unaware of its content. And so we, we kind of see this as well in, in European law um, uh, that has a, a Roman tradition, a Roman root. Uh, they often use the expression from Aristotle translated as nobody is thought to be ignorant of the law. So ignorance is not an excuse. Um, so this, is, sh this shows up in our law today. Uh, sorry if you didn't know that was against the law, but you're still held accountable for it. Um, and actually, this first shows up in world history in the Bible, this concept that ignorance of the law is no excuse for breaking the law. In Leviticus 5, uh, verses 17 through 19, uh, which for context, Leviticus was written uh, by Moses a thousand years prior to Plato and Socrates and the Roman Republic. So, so you know, these, these Greek philosophers have some good things to say, uh, but in context, they, they're a pale shadow to the wisdom of Scripture. So we read in, in Leviticus uh, 17, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. So, so he's guilty even though he didn't know it. Uh, verse 18, he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. So does the understanding that ignorance does not excuse him of his guilt. Atonement still had to be made for it. Cicero, the famous Roman lawyer and scholar and philosopher, he wrote the following. He said, there is a true law, right reason, agreeable to nature, known to all men, constant and eternal, which calls to duty by its precepts, deters from evil by its prohibition. This law cannot be departed from without guilt, nor is there one law at Rome and another at Athens, one thing now and another afterward, but the same law, unchanging and eternal, binds all races of man and all times. One law, eternal, binding all races of man at all times. Plato writes the following conversation between Socrates and, and his companion. Uh, Socrates says, come then, do you consider just things to be unjust and unjust things to be just or just things to be just and unjust things to be unjust? And his companion re replies, I consider things to be, I, I consider just things to be just and unjust things to be unjust. Socrates then says, and are they so considered among all men elsewhere as they are here? And the companion says, yes. And then Socrates says, are things that weigh more considered heavier here and things that weigh less lighter or the contrary? The companion says, no, those that weigh more are considered heavier and those that weigh less lighter. 
as Socrates says. And is it so in Carthage also, and also Lycaea? Yes, says the companion. Socrates then says, noble things, it would seem, are everywhere considered noble, and base things base, not base things noble, or noble things base. The companion replies, that is so. So we would call this natural law, as in we hold these truths to be self-evident. So yes, they are self-evident, and so we are all held to its standard, this eternal law that we know from scriptures from God. In Genesis 20, uh, verses 1 through 7, we read the story of Abraham, and this is before the law is given through Moses. Uh, We read, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So in the story, we see God judges the hearts and the thoughts of men, and that motives matter. And conflicting thoughts, as Paul says, can excuse you on that day or accuse you. In this story, we see God knows Abimelech's heart. Because God knew Abimelech's integrity of heart, God kept him from sinning, so he did not touch Sarah. For all but the most crooked of cultures condemn taking another man's wife. That is self-evident. So this man, Abimelech, was rightly troubled by this. Do you think he would have escaped God's judgment if he refused God's command to him and kept Sarah for his own? Or if he had known beforehand that she was Abraham's wife and still took her? No, he would not. And who would stand in his defense? Only those who will share in his judgment. And would it not be wrong if God withheld judgment from one such as this? Of course it would be. And who else is there to judge kings and leaders except God alone? And one day we will each be held to account before him for what we have done. Moving on, then Paul switches gears from Gentiles to Jews, saying in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
Now Paul is he's leaning in here to the Jewish people and to the religious uh, people here in Rome. And he's addressing their hypocrisy. He's addressing pride. And he, he's addressing that because of who they are, that their conduct directly reflects upon God. They have in the law, as Paul says, the word of God, the, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And I love that line from Paul here. Do you realize that the Holy Scriptures are the embodiment of knowledge and truth? The Scripture is alive it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So it cuts one way, yes, but it also cuts back at you. And Paul is instilling some shame here that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of their hypocrisy. And it is safe to assume that Paul is addressing some, some very real and common occurrences among the Jewish people of that day in Rome and the surrounding areas. The first was, was stealing, it was theft. You know, What's well, a little bit off the top, right? No one's going to notice. It's just Gentiles anyway. Right, then he addresses adultery. And adultery was, was rampant in, in the first century. Um, and apparently it was happening among the Jews as well. And then he, he talks about robbing pagan temples. And so we're not exactly sure what Paul is referring to, how, it was, how this was being carried out. But think about it. When we can justify in our minds that pagan temples are wicked and those people that go there are, are, are wicked and, and wrong and unclean, you can justify a whole lot of things. You, you can extort, you can steal, you can uh, destroy. So something was going on with that, where they were robbing the temples. So what, what they were doing was bringing shame upon themselves and it caused people to blaspheme God. And is this not still true today of the church? God's name is blasphemed when we deal falsely with coworkers or clients, when we steal or when we lie to cover it up, when child sex abuse is covered up in the church, the worst offenders coming to light within the last few years even. It's horrible. So the name of God is blasphemed because of it. Paul's saying, we set a high bar. Don't turn around and disqualify yourself and give God a bad name. And it's, it's easy to preach honesty to other people, but not nearly so easy to be scrupulously honest in our own dealings. Isn't that right? We are, we are ever tempted to grade honesties. You know, we've got the fact checkers out there nowadays, man. That's four Pinocchios, okay? And that's bad. And yes, that is bad. But by a strange coincidence, our own dishonesties have a way of becoming to us minor ones, while those of other people are much more serious. So let's be honest in all of our dealings. I know, you know, they lied to you, right? they cheated you. Okay, that's on them, just like it's on you or me if we do the same. We can't control what everyone else is doing. But we do have a say here and now in how we live our own lives. So let us not be hypocrites. So love God's word. Love it enough to live it out. And let's hold one another accountable to that. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So circumcision was this sign of 
covenant relationship with God established with Abraham and, and made as an ordinance for all of Israel. And covenant membership meant keeping the covenant. Without that, even the, circumc- even the circumcised Israelite had no standing with God. Verse 26, so if a man who is circumcised, uh, if, so a man who is uncircumcised, uh, like Gentiles, uh, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So it is not about some outward physical thing. It is, it is about living it out, living out the covenant with God. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. For man's praises, we know, are based off of what is outward, what is physical. God's praises are inward. He sees the secrets of our hearts, the circumcision of the heart. And in that, it demonstrates that our hearts belong to Jesus when our hearts are circumcised for him. That our hearts belong to Jesus and no one else. For he alone is Lord of our hearts. So in our hearts, we remove any obstacles and idols that get in the way of Jesus being Lord of our lives and having authority to speak into our lives. To be lifted up in our hearts as we glorify him. So lesson two of this last section of Romans chapter two is is that religious rituals don't save us. They don't save us. And they do not bring us any closer in relationship to God. Proverbs 15, eight, we read, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. God desires us to set ourselves apart to him, that our hearts, our minds, our soul, our strength would love him and be committed to him. That's what the law is about. It's about loving others as he loves us and being upright in all things. So baptism is an outward physical expression of an inward spiritual reality. So is communion. The most important aspects of these things are not the ceremony, the ritual themselves, but the condition of our hearts as we participate in them, as we partake in them. It demonstrates a spiritual reality that's taking place. For as we have seen, uh, knowledge of God and his law and, and religious rituals and rites, they, though these things do not make us right before God. So when we fall short in our works, when we fall short in our deeds, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? When we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, what hope do we have? For we are condemned, with or without the law. When our hearts condemn us for they are deceitful, what hope do we have? Only Jesus. Only Jesus is our hope. He can accomplish the work of giving us a new heart, 
a renewed mind, a forgiven soul. Only Jesus and only a genuine faith in him, a faith that leads to trusting him and obeying him, becoming doers of his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a faith that leads to salvation. So as we go this morning, may we be those who, by the circumcision of our hearts, demonstrate that we belong to Jesus in thought, word, and deed. That he is bringing about a renewal in us that leads to a life of integrity in all things and in all of our dealings. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us, Lord. We pray that we could be doers of your word. We're so thankful that we can know you, that it's the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and, and, and Lord, that it reveals your character. God, it reveals what you call good, what you call evil. So Lord, may we live always striving to be more like you, to love you better and to love others better. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd remake us You'd renew our mind. You'd transform us into the likeness of Christ Jesus. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for this chapter that uh, is challenging, Lord. Uh, But as we hear it, may we evermore become doers of it. God, may we have a, a circumcision of the heart, that our heart belongs to Jesus. It belongs to Jesus alone. And may our actions follow in that knowledge and in that truth. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.